1: Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana. Carvana. Where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today.
2: Welcome to episode 523 with my guest, Dr. Leslie Tate Gould. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the bullshit rattling around in your skull. This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. I'm struggling to be a human being. Aren't we all? For <laughs> just a generic sentence to kick the podcast off with. Why don't I talk about the weather? Fucking jackass. Uh, I'm doing okay. I uh, am waiting to get an MRI uh, on both of my knees tonight before my doctor uh, comes up with a plan for me to deal with my newly diagnosed rheumatoid arthritis, but I'm, you know, I'm living in the future a lot in my head. Sometimes I'll wake up in the morning and I'll just get a jolt of fear going through my body, you know, and it's it's not so much that I don't have a fear of death as much as I have a fear of suffering and uh, and just having a really degraded life. You know, the fact that all of my hobbies uh, involve using my body and, and using my joints, you know, playing guitar, making furniture, playing hockey. I just, uh, I really, I really hope um, I can keep doing those things. And then I try to remind myself, you know, I lean on the stuff that I've learned in my support groups. And one of the things that I remind myself is, is that there are a ton of things in my life that rheumatoid arthritis cannot touch. Love, love. I have, with friends, with my girlfriend. Um, That's it. There's nothing more. (laughs) It's the one thing on the list. The rest of it's going to be a shit show. (laughs) Uh, This is from the Happy Moments survey filled out by June, and she writes, uh, the first night sleeping away from my abusive ex-boyfriend in my own apartment, knowing I would never have to sleep under the same roof as him again hi fucking five to you june you know i have no personal experience knowing what that is like but from the things i've read and the people i've talked to it is really hard sometimes mentally to leave somebody who's abusive because there can be good qualities to them and a lot of times they've, they've dug their hooks in emotionally and they're good at manipulating and apologizing or you feel stuck, you know, financially. But I just want to wanna give you a high five. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a gender-fluid person who calls himself uh, Blood in My Caffeine Stream. And they write, When my near-manic Metal illness happy hour accompanied cleaning spree turns into what seems like a deep friend talk session between Paul, the guest, and I. And before I know it, my long-neglected bathroom is clean, I have some self-revelation done, and I realize I am still very codependent, and I'm not utterly crushed by that revelation, but excited to work on it to see how much better my life can get. Holy run-on sentence. That's what I get for Adderall and coffee. I have to say, if you're going to do a run-on sentence, that one was pretty beautiful. That it was easy to read. A lot of times, the run-on sentences, uh, you know, people won't use punctuation. And even if I've read it before, I read it on the podcast. I'll I'll just get flummoxed. But uh, thank you for that. I'm glad I helped you clean your bathroom. And what I take away from this moment you shared is that when you see shit stains, you think of me. Is that the wrong takeaway? We are sponsored today, as always, by the online therapy provider, BetterHelp.com. That's Help, H-E-L-P, BetterHelp.com. If you want to try it, go to BetterHelp.com slash mental, and make sure you include the slash mental part so that they uh, know that you came from the podcast and continue to advertise with us. Uh, They're a big part of what helps keep us uh, afloat. So uh, go try it out. I'm a big, big fan of online therapy, especially my therapist, uh, Donna, who I am scheduled to uh, see again soon. I I definitely need to tune up. Uh, I I have not made an appointment lately and uh, I can can feel that there's stuff that I, I need to talk about. And a lot of times I don't even realize that there's stuff that I needed to talk about until I start talking. Uh, about it. And I think that's one of the great things about therapy. And it's certainly nice not having to leave your house to to do it. So go to betterhelp.com slash metal, fill out a questionnaire. And if they have a counselor that they feel is a good fit for you, they'll match you up with one and you can experience a free week of counseling. You need to be 18 and they're licensed in all 50 states. All right. One more sentence. This is actually just a snapshot from a uh, struggle in a sentence. Um, I know, shit, I don't have the, the person's name that, uh, that filled this out. Uh, but she writes, uh, snapshot from her life, and she deals with depression, ADHD, uh, food issues, and anger issues. Trying to convince myself that my ponytail masks the fact that I haven't washed my hair in a week because showering seems overwhelming and getting naked seems cold and water seems like too much touching me, all while getting dressed for my job as an attorney. I am here with Dr. Leslie Tate Gould. Uh, you have your doctorate in psychology. You're a clinician, uh, and your specialty uh, is integrative. You would you would say integrating different modalities of of, of therapy?
3: Yes, because or that's
2: w- your wheelhouse. I mean, uh, don't let me put words in your mouth.
3: Sure, sure. So. I would say that I specialize in treating mood disturbances and trauma-related disorders from an integrative model. So... I became certified as a Somatic Experiencing practitioner back in 2017, and from there, you know, in you know, kind of my own evolution as a psychotherapist, but also in the development and running of uh, a business, which is uh, you know mine and several other other owners, uh, Lido Wellness Center. We really work on establishing and really having a lot of intention behind integrative models to heal. Um, and support people through their healing journey from trauma and mood disturbances.
2: What do you mean when you say uh, have intention?
3: I mean that in order to get some of these services off the ground and have them be delivered in such a way that it's not... You know, woo woo, and it's not you know so missing the mark as far as like really meeting somebody where they're at, mm-hmm. um so it's really taking services that are integrating the nervous system, integrating kind of all parts of of what I believe is like you know part of you know profound healing, you know you have to integrate the emotional aspects, the cognitive aspects, the spiritual aspects, the, the body, the physical aspects, so in and that's what i mean by kind of having a lot of intention behind that integration. So, you know, for myself, that might be through utilizing somatic experiencing in session work, but it's also utilizing a lot of other modalities, right? Like we were, you know, chatting before we jumped on, my traditional training is in cognitive behavioral therapy. So, i'm definitely familiar with what i, you know, refer to as top-down approaches, you know.
2: Yeah. Would it be fair to say that somatic experiencing uh, helps release trauma that's trapped in the body?
3: I think that how do I how do I answer that? Because I think that that d- d- why
2: don't you explain what somatic instead of uh, an, an amateur uh, sure. trying to describe what it is to the listener?
3: Sure, sure. So, you know the the language of somatic experiencing is that it's the experience of the nervous system of the body. Um, why I sometimes struggle with the language as far as something being trapped in the body there is evidence sometimes to suggest that that's possible. Um, but what I also know is trauma is really ambiguous and it's very relative. And so sometimes we'll see, you know, kind of uh, an experience of some symptomatology that might suggest that there was unresolved trauma, but they might not actually have the conscious awareness of something like happening within their system, right? It might just be their relationships are, you know, going, you know, and taking a, a left turn. They're having a lot of addictive, you know, patterns in their behavior. So if I too quickly might, you know, even though in my expertise, I might see something that might, you know, be consistent with like some type of, you know, trauma kind of, you know, resonating within a nervous system, if I leap there too quickly, it might risk kind of being attuned, misunderstood by a patient. So I tend to, you know, when I'm incorporating something like somatic experiencing in, it's really playing to a lot of what people already have the awareness of. So for instance, um like I specialize in treating uh men and women struggling with uh, disordered eating. And whether or not they meet the diagnostic, you know, criteria for that is not so much of the issue, um but often where there has been historical uh attachment injuries or trauma, there's often a very kind of interesting and unique relationship to food. So I might take some of those behavioral routes before kind of linking them more like innately and intuitively into like what's actually happening within their system, because um, I find that like especially in that type of population, if I'm too quickly you know kind of doing some deep diving into some body work, um, they'll never come back to my office, <laughs> you right. know. Um, so so then I'll I'll play to like different strengths. So um, you know sometimes, and that's where I think my my former training in cognitive behavioral therapy really lends itself. nicely because I can play to a strength of like incorporating in um, kind of the the thought piece and, and sometimes where those thoughts become irrational or what we might call disturbed. To have that be a vehicle through where I can get maybe closer to what might be manifesting in the nervous system. Um, I'm also really sensitive when you're working with trauma and, and folks that might have experienced, you know, an event that we might categorize as traumatic. Mm-hmm. I'm also quite sensitive in even using certain words and referring to, you know, the body in a certain way. So you've probably even, you know, caught on. I'll, I'll refer to the body as a nervous system or a structure. Um, I've even invited some of my patients to even, you know, share with me what language they would prefer when you're, you know, trying to kind of get near some of that work that can really manifest as we, you know, know, and as we understand from, you know, Peter Levine's work, Bessel uh, van der Kolk's work. Um, But sometimes like on a clinical practice level, it's, it takes time, you know, it takes time to really get near that. So I guess that also in some ways refers to even the first question of the intention that that I take, and also my team takes at Lido Wellness, like we take a lot of intention at doing things that are paced. Um, so we 're not you know deep diving we 're not looking for cathartic you know big rev- revelatory right. releases
2: um we're so look- the 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 order is as important as you know whatever the the issue is that you 're looking to kind of i don 't know heal
3: absolutely um you know at Leto wellness because we are an outpatient clinic, so we do treat at times like a higher acute patient you know somebody who maybe has even taken some time out from their lives and has gone to maybe away for treatment, you know, has gone to residential and we're kind of acting as a bridge before they kind of resume back into normal daily routine and functioning, maybe with their parents or their work life. Um so we're we really have to be cautious around what areas that we're, you know, willing to start unpacking. Mm-hmm. And I know for myself, like I'll even have patients sometimes come in for an initial assessment and they'll say, okay, Dr. Tate, like I know I need to work on this. But then any time in session work, if we start to get near it, they become highly dysregulated. Mm-hmm. Like I may, you know, again, like trying to be as attuned as possible, I may, you know, suggest, hey, like maybe we need to kind of go a different route. Um, but the pacing is everything. Because sometimes...
2: When you say uh, dysregulated, uh, would, would it, it's too heavy for them?
3: Not necessarily too heavy. In fact, m- my experience of when people can find themselves in a, a pattern of dysregulation it's often they've actually kind of reinforced that pattern in which they can actually talk about like really, really um, upsetting, you know, kind of uh, terrifying uh, uh, descriptions of maybe some former events or some things Mm -hmm. that have happened. But it's more there. What I mean, kind of by that dysregulation is there's not a way for them to integrate some of that material to either like find some deep meaning or purpose with it, to find some way to kind of move forward from it or let go of it. Um so it almost kind of becomes like this recursive, like recurrent, you know, um constriction. And so when when we're talking about, you know, pacing and also, you know, things being too heavy, I tend to and, and I say I, but a lot of somatic experiencing practitioners Tend to really look at, you know, what's what's kind of happening unconsciously. what What's maybe being missed in their conscious awareness? And we are also really highly uh, skilled to look at right as somebody's sitting across from us in the room. What are some of those behaviors? What are those mannerisms that might be showing us that okay, this person is doing this very gesture or is seated in such a way that might be actually more supportive? So we're gonna like look there. Like we're gonna kind of let the body kind of take us to. Okay, gosh, when they talk about this topic, um, you know sometimes their like, legs stop shaking. So we might just bring some gentle awareness, like, hey, I noticed that as you've been talking about that, your leg kind of went still. Can you notice what that stillness feels like? Or mm-hmm. how do you experience it to be there? Or does it you know, kind of remind you of something, right? So we might pace it and slow things down in such a way where there's not so much emphasis on the details. You know, there's a lot more emphasis on how can we kind of slow it down? How can we be curious? Mm-hmm. Um, which so truth- mindfulness
2: is a big part of huge part starting starting. It. Uh, as I've shared with the listeners be- before, uh, I did ex, uh, somatic experiencing about, uh, about two years ago, and I think I did about 10 sessions, and I was very skeptical in the beginning because it felt very woo-woo uh, yes. to me. Uh, you know, the the uh, practitioner who was awesome um, was very into new age stuff. There was candles and the Buddhist altar, and some of the language she used was not language that I necessarily uh, would use. In fact, it would sometimes be the language of, of uh, people that I would kind of make fun of, uh, even <laughs> though I know it probably worked for them. I just I hung in there because I, I I'm willing to try anything. And at about the sixth session, something broke open wide in me, and I suddenly understood the power of this Mm -hmm. because it I was that 10-year-old laying on the table, terrified that nobody was going to help him. And she was there saying, I'm right here. Mm -hmm. You're right here. You're safe. And it sounds kind of silly to say these things because they sound so obvious. Why is it That there's that disconnect between the intellectual and the emotional that that somatic experiencing might be needed for for someone. Hmm. I felt such a release Mm -hmm. afterwards.
3: Mm -hmm. Well, there's a few different directions I could take that question. One, and, and what came up kind of just organically for me is that My experience is that the disconnect is, and and perhaps it's not even a disconnect, perhaps it's actually just kind of what is reinforced, what is attended to, and what is at times required in some of the ways and environments in which we're raised. So because not only, you know, is my former experience in cognitive behavioral therapy, but once I really started to deep dive into somatic work and really kind of taking my practice in a completely different direction to really specialize in trauma, when you're looking into trauma, you're also looking at attachment. You're looking at those fundamental developmental milestones in relationships and uh, that tending to, you know, what's happening for that little being that is developing.
2: So trust is definitely an issue that you have to look at.
3: Huge, huge trust. Um, I I've known that in, in my own experience. Even the ability to have different tones in our voice, right? Yeah. Where sometimes, if I'm working with a, a particular patient in which we've had a long history, there's a long established relationship. Um, there's a lot of trust you know, Mm -hmm. there, I can maybe go in a different direction with that patient as opposed to someone who I'm just meeting for the first time, who I'm really having to kind of lay the framework and the modeling for what a safe, trusting, uh, like aligning relationship can even begin to look and sound like.
2: Yeah, that makes sense for me because in in my experience, the first six sessions were a lot of her just saying, you know, uh, notice the sound of the traffic outside mm-hmm. uh notice the color of the sky uh you know what what is a sound or moment from your from your life that has fond memories attached to it you know bring that feeling in here right now yes and it it felt in a lot of ways like oh my god how long are we going to do this but i did begin to notice session after session i began to feel um Safer with her. not that I ever felt unsafe, but there begins to be this um for lack of a better word bond, and I understood afterwards, oh, this was necessary for m- that little kid in me to feel safe enough to say the words that he was afraid to say when when he felt like uh he wasn't he wasn't safe
3: mm-hmm Well, what you just described, maybe without even knowing it, is a a real kind of foundational um, uh, approach, or I guess you would call it a technique in somatic experiencing that a lot of practitioners use and just live by, which is orientation. And you know, orientation is not new on the scene. You know, we do this naturally; we do this unconsciously on the day-to-day basis. It's how we know kind of our our um, way around new environments. It's why when we walk into a new setting like this. I noticed myself because I'm familiar with this framework of orientation that as I sat right, you know, in this chair, as I was waiting for you to to get started, I looked around, right? Mm. I let my eyes kind of go around to see what books you read, to see what's on the wall. Mm. That allows our systems to feel kind of more secure. And most certainly, if we've had an experience in which our physical proximity and our integrity has been compromised, we're going to even do that times a thousand, right? And that's where it, at times it can turn into more of a hypervigilance, yeah. right? Where patients will say, I know exactly where every door is, every window is in every single new environment I'm in. Hmm. And so what what you just described though, is that we want to start bridging that natural unconscious process and bring kind of some of the goodness, the supportive references into our conscious awareness. So what I do, um, and and again, I I kind of pace this with every new you know new person that I I meet in a clinical setting. Sometimes patients are really gung ho on this type of style of, in, you know, really utilizing this technique of orientation. Maybe they've done mindfulness ex- exercises before they've done meditation. So they have a lot more comfortability of let your eyes just kind of go around and let them, mm. you know, bring in, let them bring in supportive imagery from the past. Let them bring in, you know, kind of to build some of that robustness of, you know, kind of boosting mm. that system, if you will. So then when we're ready to kind of head into some more tricky terrain, it's already got support. But sometimes patients, you know, and I can kind of feel and sense that mm-hmm. pretty quickly. Uh Sometimes if I go into that direction, it can kind of kick up what we call like that self-protection, right? Yeah. So it can kick up that like, what is this? And is this... BS or, you know, like, what is she asking me to do? And so then I might go in a different direction, right? I might Mm -hmm. weave in, you know, okay, well, this person might be actually more comfortable with like top-down processing. So we're going to stay in thoughts for a little bit longer, you know, because there's also a way in which we can orient and our thoughts can be either supportive or really undermining, right? Yeah. So we can kind of play around with thoughts because if that's a channel that they speak more fluently, then I'm going to start there to really be building that rapport, to mm-hmm. be building that kind of trusting, aligning, you know, relationship to prepare us for if like when we need to do some deep dive, dive later.
2: One of the things that she focused on a lot was sensing where I was holding tension in my body and would kind of encourage me to, you know, bring my attention to that and to, to let it go, whether it was my brow that was furrowed or my chest looked kind of tight or I was clenching my fists. And the first six sessions were a lot of that. And I did begin to slowly uh relax more and more and more. And then one day, it just like an apparition appearing in the doorway. It mm-hmm. just was suddenly there. And all of these intense feelings came up. And half of my brain was witnessing it and saying, I'm so glad something is happening. And the other part of me was that little kid who was terrified, who felt like nobody was going to come save him. Mm. And I didn't have the words when I was that kid, but having the words then, uh, it, it's, it felt almost like, uh, like steam being released, like all of this pressure that had been there forever, like uh, uh, sadness and uh, you know wanting to scream. I'm 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 so afraid. Come help me. You know those were the things I suddenly found myself saying, and it, and it wasn't coming from an intellectual place. It was just it was right there, and I'm curious about. How, how it is that, that when you're dealing with a patient, you've talked a, a bit about meeting them when they're there. I would love to hear an example of what you actually do physically, things that you actually say when you're doing somatic experiencing with a patient. If you could, uh, with confidentiality in mind, sure. give us an example of real life vignettes from, from your work to better kind of highlight
3: Sure. So let me think, because, again, I have to be very cautious, right, right. In, in just what I, you know, would be willing to bring into a setting like this in, you know, the honoring of that confidentiality and protection of privacy. I mean, so one thing that you mentioned um about your experiences, you mentioned a table. So it sounds like your practitioner also was, you know, probably very advanced uh, in body work.
2: Yeah, she also uh, had her uh, license as a massage therapist. So she was licensed to uh, to touch me, to lay her hands on me. Right. N- not in like a, you know, um, I don't know, not in like a faith healing way. For sure. But in a way to say, here is a safe Touch. Mm-hmm. Here is you are rooted. Somebody here is safe. Who is with you, and um, you can trust me.
3: Absolutely. Well, and and the reason I asked was because you know when I went through my certification, which for those that don't know, it's three years, <laughs> and I did not know that when I signed off for on, somatic experiencing. For somatic experiencing, and. Um, that was so foreign to me because in my history of being trained and, you know, kind of doing um, kind of more advanced um, certifications, it's usually a long weekend, right? right? And you get some skills and you get some information and then you go and, and you're able to incorporate those um, into your practice. This was so vastly different because what I really discovered was, you know, not only did they pace the trainings and that there was a lot of intention behind that, Um As far as we would meet for a long weekend, and then there'd be about three to four months in between, because not only were we being trained of how to bring this modality to our patients, but we also were required to do our own sessions and so some of you know the moving and you know mm-hmm. and what you were describing what we'll refer to sometimes in session work as like uh kind of emotional discharge mm-hmm. that there's like actually like energy moving through the system and it, and sometimes it can be felt through heat sometimes it can be felt through sweat sometimes it can be felt through um tears right mm-hmm. like that there's actually like kind of um physiological changes that are happening in the system to reflect some of those really intense shifts that that can occur um from trauma resolution so in, in some of like bringing some of that material back to sessions, um, I I had to really kind of hold my former experience as a more traditionally trained psychotherapist and also kind of look at what what type of patient am I working with um, and, and where do I see this kind of unfolding as far as my comfortability with doing like uh, touch work and body work so my advanced sessions um we actually had to undergo right as you know part of our training um not only kind of undergoing sessions in which you know people were able to do touch work for us but then we also had to practice um and it was the very awkward you know you'd be in like a triad and you'd have to be you know very clumsily like you know trying not to do harm to <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so the person that you're working with um But, you know, safe touch, and there's a lot of exceptional SEs, um, who actually incorporate this, like, on a daily basis in their work. Um, it is, uh, a tremendous, uh, kind of part that can really coincide with some of the depths that this, you know, kind of model can take people. I, for myself, since I had to really negotiate that as a clinical psychologist, I don't utilize touch nearly as often as some of, you know, my other SE comrades. Um, do you have
2: an additional license to be able to? Touch
3: there is a few additional certifications, but they're not necessarily from like the institute in which I became certified. So they're not from like the SETI organization. Um, but there is, you know, there's a few, you know, kind of uh, champions who have really made that more of their kind of level of expertise. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've considered, you know, taking some of their courses um, because I know the healing benefits of it. Um, in fact, in a former life, um, I worked in, you know, primary residential settings, um, specializing in treating substance addictions mm-hmm. and I used to anecdotally say and, and maybe there's a published article out there that supports this, but I used to say especially for my my you know the ones that I would love my heroin addicts um, and my opiate addicts that this to me was a fundamental demonstration of a lack of safe touch throughout their lives yeah um, and anecdotally that was really confirmed for me because we would talk about what the highs would would provide for them and it was a warm blanket. You know, Mm -hmm. a warm, warm, soothing, gentle caress, right, that that was missing from their life. And so there is a tremendous healing value to being able to incorporate safe touch into practice. And once in a while with, you know, especially my private practice, when I've worked with someone for many years, I might do some things, for instance, because you were asking, kind of, mm. what are the tools? Um, you know, one thing that I've I've done from time to time, and and it was it's a really powerful exercise. Is you can sometimes have a patient um, seated, and and it's kind of it, you have to be really strategic because you also have to make sure that you're comfortable, and not in the sense of, um, like a boundary or anything, but more just, cause sometimes you do touch holds for like several minutes. Mm-hmm. So you want to make sure you're comfortable and seated in a way in which you, you know, you're not going to crank your neck or anything. Um, but I'll, I've invited patients to be looking out of a window so that they have a really supportive, you know, area in which they can orient. And then I've had, um, basically, it's, it's a postural hold. So I'll be seated behind them with their permission, of course. And I'll do kind of a gentle kind of um, snug. So my arms or my hands will go on either side of their arms. Mm-hmm. So it almost looks kind of like a half hug, but right. I'm, it's from behind. And I'll just, you know, kind of my hands will be there. There will be enough pressure so that they know that they're there. That's also mm-hmm. really important. And we are they seated them. or on a table? They're seated, Okay. Yeah. So they're seated in a chair. I'm seated, you know, kind of Mm -hmm. um, behind them, but off to the side a little bit so that they can also kind of, if they need to, I can kind of see also what's happening more clearly. Um, And then I'll just be, you know, kind of inviting them to breathe. So where that has been really powerful is with some of my patient work um, for those that might be struggling more with panic presentation, where there can kind of almost be through that touch. A series of kind of diaphragmatic breaths, supportive breaths that we can kind of get in a pattern together. So it can really help to foster um, kind of a more direct mirroring Mm -hmm. of breathing and kind of slowing that posture. It can also help me get a real kind of like literally hands-on feel for what are some of those little supportive behaviors that then I want to highlight and bring some awareness to mm-hmm. in session? So, because what happens a lot of times and we don't we don't really feel it unless someone is like trained to really see it for us, is there's a lot of different sways and different movements that our bodies have, and that when we're given permission with safety to kind of just like let our body move, a lot of times it'll sway from left to right, or it'll sway backwards to forward. And it's not anything violent or anything that you could see. A lot of times, like our untrained eyes, we miss it, you know, a lot of the time where our our eyes are more trained to see kind of more of those recurrent or repetitive behaviors, right? The shaking leg to indicate mm-hmm. some form of, you know, tension or anxiety. And so sometimes with that touch work, you can even start to like with the patient, like, okay, do you notice that swaying? I'm noticing it too, Right. right. So that's kind of a more explicit if you will like kind of technique that I've used but again a handful of times because it's pretty rare. One of
2: the one of the things that my practitioner did is she would ask me to to focus on my breathing and she was uh, had her hand on my forearm and she would gently squeeze it to the rhythm of my breath. Mm. And it at first I was like, "What the fuck is this?" Uh, and then I began to feel like, "Oh, there's somebody here who is completely attuned to me that has boundaries that I can I can really let go." Because I think a lot of us, especially those of us who have had trauma, is we're afraid of the ugly cry. We're afraid that if if we start to let go it's going to be embarrassing and i came right to that edge with with her that one day and i decided let's just let it go mm-hmm. let's just let it go and i i was not only sobbing it i was wailing like a, mm-hmm. a, a like a child and it i leaned into it even though a part of my brain was like wow you look really stupid right now <laughs> and it made sense to me Afterwards, why she had had successions of establishing the trust and no judgment, and it it uh is is that common that that's someone's experience
3: you know it's hard to say because you know especially in my time at Lido, often my experience of those that have maybe had former somatic experiencing it might have been like in a treatment environment. And so what I also know, which can kind of be the blessing and the curse of like a residential treatment experience, is that it's very short term. So sometimes I've you know, kind of had patients relay that they've had somatic experiencing, but then when they kind of retell it to me, in, in my professional opinion, it seems a bit quick paced, right? right? It seems a bit kind of um, maybe with like a, a bit too much agenda in motion of mm-hmm. we've got to get to this target rather than sitting back and kind of letting things unfold. And, you know, truth be told, like that is where I reside as a therapist. And sometimes with patients, it can be quite frustrating, right? Because they can come in, they're like, I'm ready. I want to work on this. I'm committed. Let's do this. And then we start talking and the pace doesn't feel right. You know, it feels too, you know, kind of focused and quick and, and potentially could reinforce some of that kind of big swing of catharsis, which does feel good. But then it's what I really took away from a lot of my training in SC was that we have to start moving away from those traditional models that are actually reinforcing our systems to feel bad in order to feel good. Mm. Like that is a time and true um, kind of basically paradigm, you know. Would it
2: be fair to say that the body lets go when it's ready?
3: Yes. Because where I have been so humbly in witness to is that... In somatic work, in trauma work, we in 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 old times, right? In my old training, I would sometimes view some of the things that would come out of patients' mouths or some some of the things that would occur in session as resistance. I know that I was dead wrong back then, because what I also know is there is such a unique capacity of our body to take that system where it needs and wants to go, and also to have in innate and preserving self-protection in place. And so you even spoke about that, right? Those parts of you that were like, Wow, I'm really, you know, I'm I'm leaning into this. I'm, I'm ready to let go. And then there was that other, you know, which I might, in this case, like Mm title self protection. That self protective part that was like, oh man, like you're gonna look real bad, right? (laughs) Right? And like we've got to kind of rein this in. And you know, boy, like we don't really want to lose it. And is it safe to, right? Right. And so we all have kind of those unique characteristics. And what I've really discovered because another technique that I'll use, I would say I use this every single day in my practice is. There's a channel in which um, trauma can really kind of manifest and or heal, and that's through imagery. And so, when I was first trained in in SE, we would really kind of practice what are some supportive images that we can kind of really weave in to see where this kind of trauma renegotiation can lead.
2: Uh, things things that are soothing to people from their past, or just things uh, kind of in general, or all of the above.
3: All of the above
2: so it might be a you know a sunset
3: yeah and and what i and why i bring this in so often is that i tend to trust that whatever's coming in the room is real and valid and and probably important for me to see and it's a real paradigm shift right especially from like a top down cbt former therapist mm-hmm. who said hey we've got to challenge these thoughts and we've got to you know right. have this order and we've got to have this goal in mind with se i sit back and and I say, okay, where is this going to take us, right? And sometimes I'm explicit about that, but then sometimes I just kind of see where we're going to go. But as I was mentioning before, that can at times infuriate patients, right? Because they can at times view that as we're not getting to the work.
2: Yes. Right? Uh, and I totally understand that because there was a part of me that began to feel like she is a charlatan and she is bilking me for mm-hmm. money.
3: Mm-hmm. And so- what I really try to assure people of is that in the spirit of like a lot of my work, it appears like chit chat, right? It appears like this like back and forth exchange, but I am carefully looking at and kind of trying to kind of observe what can I weave in as like an in what I call like an organic intelligence. And that's not my term. It's, you know, term from some of the leaders of SE. what's coming into the room that then I can grab onto that might be an actual linkage to where we need to go the body does that for us. So for instance, at times when I've had, you know, patients where there's maybe been an interruption, and and when I say maybe I I should even rephrase that as for trauma to reside, there is often an interruption of a natural cycle of fight, flight, or freeze. That's where we get stuck. And, And a lot of times, because we are so evolved, and we have these thinking brains, we have these memories, you know, storage facilities in our brains, a lot of times when I've had patients where they'll come in and they'll say, But that thing, like I should have been able to get away, or I should have been able to fight this person off, or like, what the hell's the matter with me? Like, why did I tolerate that happening? And so in that type of language, right, we really try to kind of shift from that which can feel like helpless, it can feel powerless, it can feel like, you know, Shameful. perpetual shame, victimhood. I try to kind of t- like you know, bring in another piece of somatic experiencing, which is really the fundamental understanding of our physiology. And so I do a lot of education around what happens in fight flight and what is freeze? Why does it come on? You know, I have lectures on dissociation, right? We talk about, you know, there's a whole continuum of dissociation and why at times it comes on To manage that which is unendurable. And that's Levine's work, right? Mm -hmm. He really spoke about this. If you've ever read Waking the Tiger, he's a great section on dissociation. So some of my work will also be, you know, we might be talking about nothing, right? It might just look Mm -hmm. like we're talking about grocery lists. But if I'm noticing something happening in their physiology, I might say, hey, like, let's pay attention to that. Just, you know, and and sometimes that'll kick up self protection. Somebody will say, "What are you noticing, right. <laughs> right?" Or or you know, what what is it that you want me to do? You want me to move my hand from here to here? What does that mean, right? Mm-hmm. And th- and that makes sense. And I really normalize that for patients as well. Like, hey, some some of the things that I'm going to ask you to kind of pay attention to, the moment might pass, and that's mm-hmm. okay, right? Because I also really try to align them and, and really normalize for them. Look, I'm going to actually be inviting you to, you know, look at these things. But if that system is not ready to look at it, and it blasts us off into a different direction, or if it says, you know, nope, now the moment has passed, then I'm going to trust that as an organic, intelligent experience, and I might move in a different direction.
2: gotcha. One of the uh, things that I have struggled with when it comes to you know, either talk therapy or somatic experiencing is not being able to describe what I'm feeling, not mm. knowing. Is that a common thing?
3: Very, very common. Talk about that. So, in in my training and some of my lectures that I'll offer to groups, um, I refer to an idea. It's a it's an acronym because you can't have any good therapy model without great acronyms, sure. right? So, in somatic work, um, it's called SIBAM. So, it stands for sensation image, behaviors, affect, aka feelings or meaning, also known as thoughts, right? So I really try to inform people from this acronym to let them know that each of us have channels that we're really functional at. Um, Sometimes I refer to them as like our superpower. And then other channels that are a little harder for us, that are harder for us to kind of find the language. And it's so interesting because in my early work in training, I assumed, being a psychologist, that my superpowers were thought and uh, affect, so thoughts and emotions. Because I thought, okay, I'm a psychologist. That's what I do all day. Right. <laughs> I talk thoughts, I talk feelings. Little did I know that when given the permission to actually kind of sit back and just be in the noticing of what's happening in my structure, what's happening where I notice temperature changes, where I notice tightness or looseness where i notice hunger or fullness right like all of those little kind of nuanced things within my um my being
2: oh you're talking about within you not within within the the client oh yeah
3: so because when i was training i again i assumed that you know that sensation i was like oh i I don't know that's why i'm here right i'm I'm trying to learn the language of this i actually discovered that that is my superpower it's through sensation and and where i've been able to really kind of you know, pull that into session work is at times really bringing my subjective experience of something into the room and making it live. So for instance, um, say I'm, I'm having a bit of a stuck moment and I'll just, I'll just say like, gosh, what's flashing. And I'll call it like my marquee. I'll mm-hmm. be like, what's flashing in my marquee in my mind right now is like, I'm just noticing like something here. And I'm, you know, and I'm motioning for, for listeners to my chest and they'll say, gosh, like I notice something too. All right, like so, let's both, let's mutually together kind of mm-hmm. pay attention to what we're noticing there. And then, you know, I might invite some orientation. So, because also our tendency, right, when somebody's asking us to, you know, kind of deep dive into our structure, our tendency is to be self protective, of mm-hmm. course, especially if there's been a violation. So, I'll weave in, okay, well, while we're doing that, we don't have to hold eye contact. Let's just kind of let our eyes bat around the room and see what we notice, right? Mm-hmm. And so we also refer to that like in our work as titration. So we'll be looking outside, right? We'll look at the sky, we'll look at the plants in my office, we'll look at the books on my shelf, and then we'll kind of welcome back what's happening inside. So I'll use that at times to also kind of bring in sometimes that that gap that happens when people are like, I just don't have the words. I'll bring in that language of SIBAM. Okay, well, where would you feel like you you often do have the words? Well, I can hang in thoughts all day long. Great. Let's start there, right? Mm-hmm. Because thoughts can sometimes lead to a lot of really interesting conversation. Of course, it's very intuitive, right? A, a lot of times our our thoughts are, you know, kind of our powerhouse for critical thinking. But when we're c- trying to kind of navigate the like unsteady seas of trauma, like we have to sometimes be able to kind of, you know, step out into our feeling, you know, awareness and also our sensations. But I like to kind of go back and forth. You know, I mm-hmm. like to maybe go in a channel that's really um, nuanced, really comfortable, really safe for that person. And then I might dip a toe into like, okay, well, so let's slow that down. Like, wow, you just – I noticed you took a breath there. Like, how did that feel? Mm-hmm. You know, to bring in kind of that, that permission to also notice, hey, something else was showing up <laughs> in the right. room with us in right. addition to some of those thoughts or or elsewhere.
2: And Sometimes, and have you experienced this when you were receiving a somatic experiencing uh sharing thoughts that were coming up in your head that were kind of stuck and, and and bouncing around, and was that ever embarrassing for you to to share those or have your patients um you know shared stuff that that was difficult for them to share
3: I mean no doubt you know i'll I'll take the first part of the question you know. What's really nice about the intention that the training takes with somatic experiencing is there's pretty much a built-in expectation that you're going to be with the same group of people for the first two years. So you start to really feel out, who do I feel safe doing some of these sessions with? And also, and then that might be like from peer to peer, but also what practitioners do I really feel safe working with? And so I started to really quickly discern, you know, who do I want to do this work with and and who's not for me?
2: So you had a choice. Mm-hmm.
3: Oh, absolutely. And and then for the latter, you know, question, I mean, no doubt, you know, therapists, like we have such a privileged experience and, and I'm so honored to be able to bear witness to some of the discoveries that people make in my office. You know, people come into our clinic and they'll maybe have even had 45 days or 60 days or five years of therapy. And they'll come in and after, you know, some weeks, and I'm not suggesting that it's because we're some, you know, magical wizards in what we do. But I think there's just a lot of permission granted and a lot of space where people will say, gosh, like, I've never even shared this with my husband, mm-hmm. you know, or I've never even shared this, you know, with my therapist whom I've worked with and I really like, yeah. you know, Um, and that's where I really feel like the wisdom in utilizing our our body, utilizing the, the intuition that we have, whether that's through like the intuitive nature of our feelings, you know, our feelings are there to be felt. They are like our temperature gauge of what's happening. What am I noticing? Mm-hmm. And so often we're in environments or we're required to really compartmentalize those, you know, oh gosh, like I've got such a busy schedule. Like I've got to ignore the fact that I haven't eaten since 7 a.m. and it's 5 p.m. Like, that's a problem, you yeah. know, because then we're, we're, we're essentially unintentionally cutting off access to all of the wealth of this information, these channels, these, these kind of nuances and discoveries that really do reside within us.
2: Our bodies can be such good friends to us. And it, it took me decades to understand that because my body always felt like my enemy. And it felt like it was, it was always working against me, whether it was, you know, that I was tired, uh, or that, you know, um, you know, some shameful episode from something that turned me on it, it, once I stopped judging my body and started listening to it and stopped numbing it with drugs and alcohol. I began to discover that it was telling me really important things like, you don't like this person. This person gives you a stomachache. They drain the life out of you. So now, what are you going to do with that information? Are you going to take care of yourself? Or are you going to be mean and say... You know, you're a terrible son, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that was a real turning point for me. And to anybody who's out there, who's struggling with body image and, um, you know, or whatever it is, trap trauma, chronic pain, um, just for a moment, say, what if my body is trying to work with me?
3: Yes. It's so intuitive and it's the only one we have. Yeah. And I mean, you, you said that so well because, you know, what I tend to see is symptomatically things present themselves for a reason, right? Panic disorder does not just come online for nothing, right? It's a real thing and it it's really scary. You know, I, I have the utmost compassion and respect for the patients in my life who have had to struggle with that. And in somatic work, we really try to invite in patients to start to get near some of the nuances of what their system is telling them so that they don't have to continue to kind of essentially get awakened when things are so loud and so dysregulated that they can't ignore it any longer. Yeah. And, and so, you know, some, some frameworks call that like staying within our window of tolerance, right? Mm -hmm. Like we really try to like kind of operate from this, this window of, okay, I'm noticing like an uptick in, in nervousness. I'm noticing an uptick in frustration. Like, all right, rather than like you said, judging that or diminishing it or saying that it's not real or not allowed, right? Because that's often other people's voices,
2: right? How important is it to deal with someone's numbing themselves through self-medicating before you can make any headway with these other things. Because in my experience, I had to stop numbing my body, as I said, to be able to listen to it. Yes. Uh, what What do you do? Let's say you get somebody who's uh, in there and they're smoking weed all day long. You know, not not that weed can't be a great thing for recreational fun, but when somebody's using it to cope with life.
3: Right. Yeah, I mean <laughs> to answer it quickly, but then I'll give a, a little bit of a longer response, um you cannot do them at the same time. Because what is required is is attending, is you know, noticing the subtle changes and when there is kind of a blanket substance that basically targets all uh areas, all detectors, all of those signals in our system, then there's no way that we can extrapolate what we want to look at and then leave what we don't. So at Lido, you know, we require, even if someone does not identify as having a substance use disorder or an issue with alcohol or drugs, we do require that people remain chemically abstinent other than what might be, you know, kind of their psychotropic medications that are carefully curated and managed by our medical director. Because, we know the heavy lifting that is required to do this work. And and we also hope that people have kind of the courageous, you know, trust and, and awareness that, hey, like you might actually discover that you have what it takes also right. to, yeah. to navigate through this. And that perhaps in the past, when, you know, drugs and alcohol might have come online, Things might have been different. Maybe you didn't have that awareness that you really have what it takes. You know, substance abuse and also um, food-related behaviors start young. You know, I tend to see food-related behaviors starting around five. You know, five, six, seven. Those are formative years in which people are starting to negotiate and and change their relationship to food in order to seek out comfort, in order to seek out at times distraction or numbness. So, what I also know and and greatly respect about this work. Is I also know that I cannot sweep in and take people's resources until we also arm them and, and offer them solutions that won't have the kind of the same har- harmful
2: outcomes. Uh, and I loved how you described that. Uh, one of the support groups that I started going to years after I had been sober. Because I was still struggling with intimacy and the ability to trust, uh, one of the things that that I discovered in this uh, support group was that this was not a program of deprivation. This was a program of healthy abundance. This yes. was just about you know s- switching chairs. Yes,
3: absolutely. And I like that you use that word abundance because a lot of what. My kind of foundational work with anyone that I'm doing like very traditional se with is where can we kind of orient toward generating greater access to pleasure but but safe pleasure right, right. going right. for
2: a hike, learning Absolutely. how to draw spending time with friends, going to a movie by yourself.
3: Right, right. So genuine kind of um, what what someone um, actually referred to, and I loved this, wholesome pleasure, right? Yeah, yeah. Where there's no strings attached, you don't wake up and there's any regrets the next day, where it just actually feels good. It's nourishing to your system. Um, because what I also know is, you know, depending on kind of what the challenges, you know, somebody has faced, whether before maybe the introduction of numbing agents started or during is that sometimes community is also an area in which a lot of you know distrust has has developed and so people also given permission to be able to kind of seek out that abundance but sometimes they might have to do it solo for a little bit of time mm-hmm. before they build up some of the you know the capacity to trust that wait a minute like i can put my my hand out or i can pick up the phone and call a friend and it's safe to do so and it's not going to kind of reinvite some of the shame language and some of the you know second guessing of mm-hmm. of this new way of being Um, so yeah i mean a a program of of abundance you know we we talk about that in like recovery terms it's like rather than subtraction it has to be with addition Um, because if not it will be a scary place initially you know i've i've worked along a lot of people that have gotten clean and sober and unless we are bumping up their systems with some fun with some support it doesn't last, no, you know, because all of a sudden, for maybe the first time in decades, they are coming into contact with really, really terrible shitty feelings. Yeah. It doesn't feel good right, and sometimes you know we we have like kind of a, a respectful, but I think it's 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 said in play as well is that you know sometimes when people first get sober at least in that first year to two years. It's kind of like a, like a joke, right? It's kind of like, wait a minute. Like, this is what I signed on for. Like, I right. signed on for life to get better. <laughs> and, right. and what's really apparent is that. Things sometimes do feel worse at first because you don't have the same numbing agents. You don't have those same, you know, kind of bids for kind of taking out that system and having to, you know, kind of navigate through and really seeing what you're made of.
2: And and the new soothing processes generally aren't as intense and don't don't work as quickly.
3: No, because your dopaminergic system is completely hijacked for a period of time. And so, you know, when I worked in, especially in in residential for, you know, recovering, um, you know, uh, drug addicts and alcoholics, they'd say, you know, Leslie, what the F do I want to do looking at the sunset? You know, (laughs) that's not for me. Like I, you know, that that's just not even going to give me what I need. So there's also a lot of education in our work, right? About, Mm -hmm. Hey, it's going to take some time because that nervous system is going to need some time to recalibrate to what actually feels good again. You know, that it, it, it has learned and been highly reinforced to only kind of have, you know, the the markers of that dopaminergic release happen in high octane activated experiences, right. yeah. you know, whether that's, you know, substance induced or whether it's even kind of a communication induced, right? Like mm-hmm. people will at times seek out activation just to feel seen and heard, you know, so they'll seek out, you know, picking up the phone and talking to a, a family member that has really demonstrated that they don't have the goods to offer them. Right. But that they'll seek it out because it's like, well, it, it's better than nothing, mm-hmm. and so the you know it's such a um there the, the the framework of like realignment comes up for me, mm-hmm. you know it's a realigning of what feels good so that we can also start to train more of that. Yeah, right. There's no healing from trauma through just kind of grind and no pain no gain type of mentality. Yeah, it that's a, a, a great. Goodness. I love
2: I love that uh, analogy because it is your body is a finely tuned instrument. And you know, sledgehammers uh, aren't going to get it into shape. No. It's it's, and I don't mean physical shape. I mean becoming attuned to it and to be able to listen to it, and for it to to help guide you in the decisions that you that you make. It's uh, to experience joy in the little things. Uh, that to me is one of the greatest gifts of the thousands of support group meetings that I've gone to, and the thousands of hours of therapy, and you know, uh, seeing a psychiatrist and talking with you know fellows in the in the support group. That is that I do sometimes get to feel joy, and just you know, maybe watching a, a parent interact with their kid and being present for them, or the you know, taste of a pizza or, or, or something mm-hmm. to really be able to soak it in mm-hmm. rather than, you know, gobble this moment up kind of half paying attention and thirstily be looking for what's the next thing right. that's going to be intense. Cause it's an exhausting way to live. And I still struggle with that. I still, still struggle with, I got to get through this thing mm-hmm. so I can experience something that I want to experience. And it's a, it's a rough way to, To go through life is to feeling, feel like going to the grocery store is a waste of time. My life is basically on pause while I'm getting this bullshit out of the way. And then I can come back to my house and live instead of saying, well, why don't I look for nice things when I'm at the grocery store? When I look for people that are smiling or feel grateful that I live in a, country where the shelves are stocked and, right. and I can afford that. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's so hard though.
3: Sometimes. It is. It is. What, what just came up for me in listening to you is, you know, it's, it's the, you know, kind of dirty V word, it's vulnerability, you know, being in the moment actually calls upon us to be greatly vulnerable right? To take things in requires a, a pacing and a spaciousness that sometimes if we haven't had a lot of comfortability or even permission to feel things fully, the the promise of chasing the next thing, of keeping yourself over scheduled and structured, of, you know, not really letting things in, that for a lot of people actually feels safer mm-hmm. because it doesn't require anything of us. All right. Right. Even though it does, right? It, it actually takes so much from our vitality, our life, our relationships, the depth in which things can grow and really be. But in the moment, right? We just go. We just pummel through and it's on to the next. Um, I, I, you know, really attribute some of the kind of my more, most recent growing to really incorporating a daily practice of guided meditation.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And I've even shared this with patients where um, I was doing this one course on uh, where the invitation would be, you know, notice every time that you go from a seat to a stand or standing, you know, uh, posture to a seat. Just notice it. You don't have to do anything with it, but just notice it. Mm -hmm. And I did this course for three weeks and I missed it every time. (laughs)
2: I feel a lot better. <laughs>
3: and and I, would, and I would share that because, you know, I also, you know, part of like what I really try to incorporate into the room so often as a psychotherapist is I'm human too, right? Mm-hmm. So I bring in sometimes, I weave in some of my own shortcomings, even when I'm trying to do the right thing, right? Even when I'm trying mm-hmm. to, you know, kind of, you know, garner and, and offer myself some spaciousness, it's like, oh, shoot, I did it again, right? I forgot. Yeah. and And so it's also knowing that there's no perfect way to do this. That right. there's going to be times in our life where if we can really hold some intention and and great awareness, and, and again, I'll use that term mm-hmm. orientation, where, wow, like that'll feel really rich. And then there's going to be other times. I'm a mom of two little ones, yeah. a four-year-old and a one-year-old. I'm going to be hurried, right? I'm mm-hmm. going to be flustered. I'm going to miss things. Like that is also inevitably part of this. Yeah. And so it's also being able to, like with our humanness say, hey, like, that felt really awesome. And wow, like I'm going to just like really try the next time to hold some more presence, you Mm -hmm. know, to hold more space. And then I'll like kind of, you know, have to, you know, uh, remind myself of yet again, right? Those times where I step away or, Mm -hmm. and that to me, as I'm saying that out loud, that is kind of that resource of our nervous system, I can notice those little, you know, kind of subtle changes. Uh, for instance, I went away on the weekend. And so as a result, you know, we were eating a lot of fast food, just a lot of, mm-hmm. you know, kind of hurried things just to, you know, kind of, you know, pace our drive. So I felt when I returned, I couldn't wait to nourish myself and my family with, you know, good food, sustaining mm-hmm. life energy fuel, because I could feel that my body was a little off balance. But I also don't fault myself for the the burger on the side of the road.
2: Yeah. <laughs> It, you know, one of the things that really helped me was the the realization that you know when we have the two steps forward one step back, the way we treat ourselves when we have the one step back is often the real silver lining of of that moment that it 's not a failure it 's an opportunity to grow by. Looking at the way we talk to ourselves when we took that one step back and did we use that as an opportunity to be our own best friend, not to say that we can't learn from it and say next time, you know, maybe I'll do this and maybe I'll have, uh, you know, a better outcome, but to not say you stupid piece of shit. When are you going to get this right? Everybody does it better than you, and you're never going to get where you want to get. You know, As I say often on the podcast, nobody has ever shamed themselves into being the person they want to be. And um, really finding a way to deal with that mean voice in your head mm-hmm. is, uh, to me, one of the most challenging lifelong struggles, but also one of the most gratifying things when I do make headway on it is oh, yeah. to be nicer to myself.
3: Well, yeah. And, and you know Peter Levine has a great interview um, that you can easily search. It's just Peter Levine's talk on shame. And there's a, a part in there in which he really talks about the fundamental biological basis for shame, right? And he gives some examples of, you know, for children, shame is indicated four times in which if there is... Uh, an immediate harm or threat to their physical safety that shame comes on to course correct immediately that without it we might perish in our younger years because mm-hmm. oftentimes like we will do some, some things as two year olds or three year olds or five year olds that could potentially be dangerous mm-hmm. and so shame, say from like a, a loving parent to say, Don't poke your, your sister in the eye that's peter mm-hmm. Levine's you know example in the film, that feeling that we get where we've messed up right mm-hmm. where we're like Oh, gosh, they saw me do that. That is corrective because then we can also pull in with repair some of the empathy, right? Gosh, hey, I'm so sorry that I raised my voice, but wow, like your sister's little. I'm thinking of even my own life right now, Mm -hmm. right? Your sister's little and, and she needs to make sure that she's safe too. And you need to help her with that as well. What he really differentiates is when shame becomes corrosive in that we insert humiliation. Right. So when we insert in that language, you effing blink blink blink, right? Like you, you piece of what? You, right. Like that you're is, stupid. You're, you're stupid. You're worthless. You don't even deserve to be here. You know that type of. You language. You wait until
2: their birthday to say those things.
3: <laughs> well, and and because what happens, and and, and so I'm even you know, speaking on behalf of like those individuals where if that was like their family system, right, if that's what they dealt with, we reach a point, you know, children don't have filters. So we reach a point in our lives. And also, again, a protective nature of our survival is to not be able to differentiate what is theirs and what is mine. And so over time, if that isn't interrupted with some sort of repair or offering from that caregiver or a teacher or a Mm -hmm. sibling, right, to say, hey, like you matter, and that must have been really scary to hear those words, then we start to take that on as our own. Mm -hmm. You know, we start to believe that, wow, those things that my caregiver, the only, you know, people that I have in my life, my family that we don't get a choice in, right? We show up sight unseen and there they are. If there's no one to, you know, intervene and and make any other offering, we fall into our adult years in which we start to take on that language as our own. And that I see in my practice a lot. Mm -hmm. And I see it fueling, you know, numbing agents, those, you know, um, directions in which people take our lives to take that edge off. Mm -hmm. Because that is a hostile environment to be within. And if it's in like our own mind then the only thing possible that we can use to escape it is something that we're ingesting. Yeah.
1: You know.
2: Well, thank you so much for for coming and explaining a lot of this stuff. And uh, my hat is off to clinicians like you who are there on the on the front lines. Uh, you know, rolling up your sleeves and you know diving into the dark of mm-hmm. some of these people's lives and and helping them. Heal and make sense of uh, their their trauma and their and their struggles. It's uh, we need we need more people like you.
3: Mm, I I really appreciate you saying that. And you know my my last thing on that is, you know, there's such a human element and a necessity to be human in a room as a psychotherapist, and so. Yes, you're absolutely right. Like we are marching into some of the depths of, you know, discoveries and, you know, uh disclosures that aren't really witnessed elsewhere, but it also is such an invitation to remember that we all have our dark sides too. You yeah. know, like like we're not we're not unique in that, right? We're human mm-hmm. as well. And so there's so much healing that can happen by the permission granted of being able to be in a room with another person or a group of of people. Mm. And to say, gosh, like, wow, like, I, I feel your pain. Like, mm-hmm. I, I've been through, you know, something completely different. The, the details and the context don't matter. But wow, like, I have empathy for this because I get it. I'm human. Yeah.
2: If people want to know more about you, uh, where can they find info or contact you?
3: So they can um, find the easiest way would probably be just to go to our website, so mm-hmm. lidowellnesscenter.com. Uh, so we're located down in Newport Beach in the beautiful Lido Village, and mm-hmm. it's L-I-D-O, um, and that's probably the easiest way. It's got all of our uh, contact information. It's mm-hmm. the most direct route in order to you know get near me. Um, whether it's through um, maybe you know wanting to see what our program is all about, or even wanting to maybe you know work with me in private practice, that's a great place to
2: start. And if people uh, want to investigate somatic experiencing they can read the book waking the tiger by Peter Levine but what if they want to find a practitioner near them
3: so that a uh, great place to start now I truth be told and I'll say this um, just as a disclaimer and I hope I don't you know uh, madden any of my um, fellow se folks um, the directory currently on their website traumahealing.org, can be a little tricky to utilize um, sometimes some of their search filters are a little tricky um, but it is a great place to start um, all are, a lot of us as somatic practitioners are listed there. It also will have, you know, kind of a whole um, biography just about what are some of the areas in which they specialize more. Mm -hmm. A lot of practitioners will also indicate whether they do body work or touch work, or if they're, you know, kind of more traditionally um, licensed, you know, psychotherapists where they might just do more talk oriented services. So traumahealing.org is a great place to find, you know, the SE directory, but also it has great, you know, videos, uh, research, you know, just some, some language to really kind of get you started in your familiarity with SE.
2: Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Love that. Love it. I love when I can get an interview with somebody that exposes listeners or me to, to something new that can be helpful. I love that feeling. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. pulitzer prize finalist and named one of the best books of the year by the new york times book review people npr the washington post slate and more when breath becomes air is available wherever books are sold learn more at prh.com breath
0: what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.
2: This is uh, from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Monsters, Sony. Um She writes about her anxiety. The world has ended several hundred times throughout my life, and I've died and come back to life at least that many times. About her OCD. My internal world was my safe haven when I was little. Now the door hinge is rusty and the light is flickering. I need to change the bulb. When I do, it burns out as soon as I look away. About compulsive behaviors she writes sometimes I wonder if I convinced myself into having psychosis I'm such a perfectionist I even want to be the best at being mentally ill thank you for those this is from the shame and secret survey filled out by Girl, and uh, she identifies as straight she's in her 40s uh, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment according to her was a victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Both of my parents treated my teenaged body inappropriately. My mother both shamed me for having breasts and then would take me lingerie shopping so my boyfriend would get a, quote, treat at 15. My father made overt sexual comments in public about my body and later, when he was drunk nightly, would call me a slut. I've been violently raped, but the actions of my family was far more damaging. Been physically and emotionally abused. Um, ooh, this is intense. Last year, my husband of 15 years broke seven of my ribs in 12 places. I had to drive myself to the hospital because it was Remembrance Day. I'm Canadian, and as he's a vet, was drinking at the Legion. I was told I should have had a met, I should have had a metal plate put in my chest, but there wasn't enough solid bone to fix it to. I left him when I was discharged a week later, and he has convinced everyone that he's the poor victim with PTSD and a mean wife. I have lupus, and I'm quite ill and on a high dose of steroid, which causes weight gain. He repeatedly makes jokes in public about how fat I am. So I'm 5'6", uh, uh, 130 pounds, so I'm hardly obese, but he knew that the extra weight could make me insecure and would take a shot whenever he could any positive experiences. I have many happy happy memories with my ex-husband. I stayed far too long because he used to be a kind, gentle man. Darkest thoughts, I imagine duct-taping him to a chair and while explaining the hurt he has caused to me and our sons, cutting off fingers and toes with garden shears. Every time he is arrogant or dismissive, snip question though are you going to wear those gardening gloves and the the knee pads because w- when you're working on the toes you got to you don't want to hurt your back you got to get down there uh, darkest secrets i've taken medication that did not belong to me sexual fantasies most powerful to you i haven't been touched in a loving way in 3 years i'm just lonely What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'm financially dependent on people who are mean to me. I'd like to tell them they are terrible humans and to fuck right off. What, if anything, do you wish for? Peace, good health, financial stability, and a loving man to read in bed with at night. Have you shared these things with others? Not really. I'm pretty isolated. How do you feel after writing these things down? Glad I still have beer in the fridge anything you'd like to share with someone in the dark who shares your thoughts or experiences in the dark moments hang on to the strength you have already shown grit your teeth and hang on until tomorrow and i would add and reach out for help create a, a community of support because um we need it man when the darkness is upon us and reality is being distorted or even not distorted sometimes you know Even when we see things clearly, we cannot see clearly that we could benefit from some support. Thank you for that survey. And high fucking five on making him your ex. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by sick in a good way. And uh, she describes... A snapshot from her life. I woke up in a bad mood today, but I'm determined to hold on to healthy coping mechanisms until it passes. I even pack a lunch, but I force myself to work a long day at the office. So productive. And then I skip my workout because I'm home late. And then I have a couple drinks. Finally, alone and buzzed at the end of the night, I dig my sharp scissors out of the drawer, cut myself, and feel the tension drain out of my body. For the first time today, the world has come sharply into focus, and I feel relief. No one would ever guess. They think I have it all under control. Thank you for sharing that. That is is heavy. That is heavy. I know a lot of people struggle with with that and it's a very, very misunderstood, uh, I don't know if you call it addiction, coping mechanism, whatever whatever you want to call it, but um, a lot of people think that, that, oh, they're doing it for attention and uh, now they're doing it because they're in pain. And I'm not saying... Nobody's ever done it for attention, but um, it just bugs me when people don't consider the fact that somebody's doing it because they're in pain. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by uh, Smokey. He identifies as straight. He's in his 40s, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. I was seven when I was raped anally and forced to perform oral sex with an older teen. I believe it lasted the whole summer. He's been physically abused. My mom had a boyfriend that looked for any excuse to beat my brother and I. He would make us stand in the corner on our knees and stretch as high as we could with our arms in the air. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Um, I like to be creepy and look at other women and fantasize. I don't know, I think, I think he filled that out. Um, I think that was meant for another section of the survey. Darkest thoughts, I'm not afraid of dying. Darkest secrets, I like to look at porn, Asian women mostly. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Video sex, what if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'm sorry to my children, I was never a good father to them. What if anything do you wish for? Peace. Have you shared these things with others? No, no one, too ashamed. How do you feel after writing these things down? Better. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Get help, talk to someone. Thank you for that, man. And uh, that might have that might have been one of the briefest uh, surveys I've ever read. And uh, you are the Ernest Hemingway of, uh, of survey fields. And, and I just want to send you some love, man. Weren't a lot of words in that, that, but you got a lot of it across to me. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey. Actually, you know what? Let's uh, let's inject some loves into this. Uh, a listener named Rebecca filled out a, a huge page of uh, of loves, and so I'm just gonna. Inject them here and there throughout, uh, throughout the podcast. Uh, I love watching people decorate cakes with buttercream and sprinkles. I love feeling the low ache in my knees right before my period. That is an odd one. I've never heard somebody say that they love an ache. I love f- f- uh, the feeling of seeing the stencil of sunlight on my wooden floor. I love seeing beams of light through red leaves on the trees. I love walking through a field at dusk, smelling the ground as it meets the moist chill of the air. Oh, that that is a great one. And it's such a subtle, such a subtle one. This is from The Struggle in the Sentence, filled out by a woman who calls herself Princess Jasmine. And about her ADD, she writes, Feeling hopeless after hearing over and over again how smart and capable I would be if I just, quote, tried a little harder about her anxiety suddenly becoming extremely aware of my breath and pulse and feeling like I will almost certainly die snapshot from her life being asexual struggling with an avoidant attachment and having ADHD makes having romantic relationships extremely difficult. I've been on countless Tinder dates just to remind myself that guys think I'm attractive, but every time they want any sort of physical intimacy, I find some excuse to end the date early. Now that I finally have a boyfriend who is patient and respects my boundaries, I still can't hold his hand without feeling overwhelmingly anxious. I feel guilty that I don't know if I'll ever be able to give him the physical intimacy he wants from me. Thank you for sharing that. That that has got to be, you know. I while I know what it's like to to have a fear of intimacy, and dread around sex, um, I can't imagine what it's like to to feel overwhelmed just by holding someone's hand. Sending you some some love and good vibes. This is an awful awfulsome moment filled out by guy who calls himself Skittles and Schlitz. He's got to be from Milwaukee. Uh, He writes, I wonder if that guy, I kind of, sort of know, would have sent that LinkedIn invite yesterday if he knew how many times I thought about bending his girlfriend over my couch. I appreciate the honesty. And who knows, maybe that's why he sent the LinkedIn invite. This is uh, from the racism survey. And this was filled out by a woman who was filling this uh, out as if it were her uh, four and a half year old child. Um, So this is supposed to be from the perspective of her child. But it's her filling it out. And... um, He is of German, Austrian, and Pakistani uh, descent, and she writes, My mom is filling out this survey for me without my knowledge, as, as I am only four and a half years old. I am living in Western Europe. My mom is German, Austrian, and my dad is Pakistani. I can see it in my face. At kindergarten, I was the last one to leave the room when a native, white-skinned, blue-eyed classmate of age five hit me on the head. Then he forcefully shut the door in front of me and pushed against it. He yelled at me, You're a stranger. You are bad. You don't belong to us. On another occasion, the same boy has insulted my appearance, and I had episodes where I wished I had white skin and blue eyes. Do you remember how you felt when it happened? In shock? confused, sad, alone. How do you feel about it now? My mom, who is filling out this survey, can guess that I put this experience aside to some degree because the caretakers around were compassionate and supportive. However, my mom and dad are worried that it had left scars in the soul as they themselves had been targeted by racism and xenophobia early in life. Wow. Wow. Thank God he has support around him, but I can't imagine the scar that leaves, especially when someone's brain is in its most formative year, years, months. I hate when I make mistakes. Um, This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself We Feel Bad in Sweden, too. She uh, identifies as straight. She's in her 20s, was raised in a totally chaotic environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. My mom had insane boundary issues. She would walk around naked, masturbate, and have sex so we could hear and or see it. I was probably raped by two guys I knew while drunk. Twice people have had sex with me while I was sleeping and some more stuff. I now have so much shame about not respecting myself that I cannot enjoy sex and I have to be drunk so I can pretend. I so badly want someone to love me, but all my issues always make people leave. She's been physically and emotionally abused. My mother was incredibly abusive. She hated me and my siblings, but I'm the oldest and she hates me the most. She gave me anorexia and bulimia with her constant telling me I'm ugly. It was always just chaos around her. She broke our quote, family into pieces. My siblings have drug problems so bad that I don't know where my sister is or even if she is still alive. Nobody cares about us. Our dad doesn't at all. I haven't spoke to my mom in about five years, but 20 years of her telling me and showing me that I'm worthless and bad to the core has left me a broken person. Any positive experiences with the abusers? It's like people always say, she is still your mother, and I guess there is some level of truth to that. I mean, she was nice when people were looking well that's a narcissist. That's an abusive narcissist. You know, they, they there's that saying, you know, how do you act when no one's looking? And that is a lot darkest thoughts that she was right all along. Nobody could ever love somebody like me and I should just give up and kill myself already. Darkest secrets. I do so many things to keep the pain at bay and to seem normal. I can't even keep track anymore. Anything to numb it, which usually means having sex with people who are abusive to me, drinking a lot, taking drugs, not eating or eating too much, all to be able to go through life without people noticing how bad things really are. I think something that would be good to start things off would be to to stop drinking and stop taking drugs and if you can't do that on your own to reach out for help because it's really, really hard to heal emotional wounds when we're still in an active addiction. And the support for addictions can also help heal the wounds. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. BDSM, and it makes me feel awful because I know it comes from a place where I can't handle love or gentle sex but feel right at home if I'm forced and degraded. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to say I'm sorry to a lot of people who tried to do right by me, but it just blew up in everyone's faces. I just wanted to be loved, but I keep messing it up. Please be patient. To my parents, I just want to ask them why. Why put three people into the world just to ruin their prospects of having any kind of healthy life? What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish that someone would save me, maybe a cult leader. I always somehow felt that that could be good. I'm so tired of thinking for myself. And in, in parentheses, that was the famous Swedish humor. Have you shared these things with others? I usually have to tell people at some point where my family are, why I'm all alone. They usually say I'm very strong and should be proud. Some people cry. I don't like that. But almost everybody uh, that at some point felt sorry for me got angry if my problem somehow interferes with their life. People always understand when it's easy, but have very little understanding during bad or dark periods. How do you feel after writing these things down? A little lighter, I must say! Exclamation point. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Nobody's perfect. We still haven't killed any puppies or stole candy from small children. How could we be the worst? Question mark. Ah. Uh, I love when I get a, a a survey, especially like this one, not because of the pain, but because they're they're reaching out and they're opening up and they feel lighter afterwards. But I I, I really love it when I get it from you know, part of the world that I've never even been to. This is from the racism survey filled out by LZ, and uh, she's Asian American. And she writes, When I was 13 in 2005, I moved from a very diverse middle school to a predominantly white high school in a much wealthier neighborhood in Westchester, New York, my freshman year. On my first day, I walked into homeroom and noticed that almost all the other kids were white, but I guess I didn't think much of it at the time because they looked like what I saw in high school movies growing up. I sat next to the only other Asian girl, I'm Filipino by the way, in the class to say hi, and she immediately got up and sat with a group of white. White kids. Not too long afterward, I realized that no one wanted anything to do with me or that handful of other uh, people of color kids. I was pretty much ignored my entire high school experience, and literally anytime someone said something to me, it was racist. A lot of the kids, and I think even some of the white teachers, assumed I didn't speak English well and spoke to me super slowly. I was even placed in classes a grade lower than me, even though I was smart as hell. To remember uh, how you felt when it happened instead of feeling hurt right away I was mostly confused because I didn't understand why I was being treated that way at my old school uh, I was friends with everyone and we all accepted each other's differences I went from feeling loved and confident to thinking I was weird ugly and like I did not belong I just wanted to get the fuck out of there and for it to all be over how do you feel about it now Looking back now, I feel angry and wish I had it in me then to speak up and tell everyone to go fuck themselves. I wish I would have stuck up for myself and the other kids who'd had hurtful things said to them. I recently learned that high school is where I taught myself how to dissociate because I was so fucking miserable, and 15 years later, I'm struggling so hard to snap out of it. Any thoughts or feelings you'd like to share? Although I feel angry, it definitely made me a more empathetic person. Thank you for that. Thank you so much for that. And that is not the first time I have read a survey uh, about somebody in school just because uh, they looked like you know, they were Asian or some other ethnicity were talked down to by teachers as if they didn't know how to speak English. Uh, a couple more loves from Rebecca. I love watching people paddle on the river. I love when my pace is in sync with crosswalk signals. Oh, that's a great one. I love seeing the dirt get sucked up by my vacuum. Bonus points if I can feel and hear the crunch and crackle of the debris. That is a great one. I love the heat and squeaky dryness of dinner plates as I pull them from the dishwasher. Oh man, you have got a poetic streak, Rebecca. Uh, and then finally, this is a uh, this is from What's My Name Again? Uh, who identifies as a agender, uh, and they give us a snapshot from their life. I used to go to the top of a 15-story parking garage and sit with my legs dangling over the side so I could talk myself out of jumping. Though no one ever noticed or tried to stop me, I always got myself back down the stairs alone, and as difficult as it was, I'm glad I've stuck around. Flash forward a few months... A date I was on took me to the top of that same parking garage so we could look at the city lights. We were hugging and laughing and playing in the snow that had gathered around the cars, and I took a moment to watch my breath coming in and out of my lungs in the cold air. I was glad to still be breathing, and glad she was with me. We stopped to share a long kiss. Suddenly a man's voice was yelling, "'Hey, you can't be up here!' the one of a dozen rooftop visits that I actually enjoyed, and of course, it was the night that the security guard actually paid attention. He chased us out with his flashlight, and we ran giggling like teenagers. Oh, so awesome. So awesome. I love when the universe just gives us a a hug. I don't know what other word for it, but I love those moments when you feel like, now this is not coincidence. This is this is some force in the universe telling me to hang in there. And uh, I hope you I hope you enjoyed our episode, our interview, our surveys. And uh, just remember, if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, you you are most definitely not alone. And thanks for listening.